Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Waikai Church, and thank you for joining us on this Super Bowl Sunday. Go Niners! Uh, if you are new or visiting, we do want to extend a special welcome to you, and if there are any questions you may have, uh, please find me or any one of the other elders after service is over, uh, anything you have. Um, but if for any reason you feel uncomfortable speaking to one of us face-to-face, you can always send us an email as well. All of our information and direct emails are on our website, and so please do not hesitate if you have something on your heart. And at this time, I invite you to take out your Bible or Bible underneath the chair in front of you and turn to the book of Luke. We are in chapter 7 and verse 11 as we continue our study through the book of Luke. Luke chapter 7, verses 11 through 17 is our passage today. And that passage can be found on page 863 if you are using a church Bible, page 863. Luke chapter 7 and verse 11. Before we uh, look at our text, would you please join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for this time of worship. And as we come uh, before your word, Would you please speak to us? Would you show us uh, who you are? Help us to really know you. Uh, We confess that there's nothing we need more than that. Uh, There are people here who may not know you, God. By your Holy Spirit, would you convict uh, them of a knowledge of who you are? Convict us of your love for us and, and help us to trust you more and more and live unto you more and more. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. In the first several chapters of the book of Luke, we are introduced to this Jesus who is utterly unlike anyone that the world has ever seen. There is this authority about him that Luke explicitly brings out in the way that he preaches, how unlike he is to the scribes and rabbis and the preachers of the day. There is this gravity in the words that come out of his mouth that even prophecy hundreds of years earlier is fulfilled in his own coming. There is this authority in the way that he commands unclean spirits with just a simple sentence. He says, be silent and come out, and the demon has to come out. It must obey, which frees a man from his oppression. There's this power that Jesus can direct the fish of the sea to jump into fishing nets, which would be the end of the line for them. And yet they still all do it. All of them do. They listen to Jesus to the point where those nets start to rip and the fishing boats start to sink. Jesus has this jurisdiction over the supernatural realm and also over the physical world. And his word is such that if we listen to it and obey it, at the end of chapter 6, We are likened to an immovable and unshakable house built upon rock that no storm and no stream and no flood could ever ultimately damage. But his word is also such that if we merely hear it, however, and not put into practice what Jesus says, then our lives are without a foundation of any kind and we will be washed away in the coming flood of judgment. But that is how authoritative his word is. That what we do with it determines absolutely everything about us for now and into all of eternity. And yet it is that as high and as mighty Luke has been showing Jesus to be, he is also the one who stoops down to the level of the lowest people, which is not what high and mighty usually do. But Jesus stoops down to the one under demonic oppression who everyone has already written off. Jesus didn't write him off. 
He notices and touches the untouchable, filthy leper to heal him, and he didn't have to touch him to heal him. He could have done it from six feet away, but Jesus wanted him to feel human touch for the first time in a long time to experience that affection. Jesus helps a poor, paralytic man who had to be carried in on a stretcher of sorts, a man who interrupts his own preaching and teaching by having his friends dig up the roof above him in the rudest manner possible. And yet this Jesus decides to restore his body completely and give him an altogether different kind of new life. Jesus calls the tax collector the worst kind of sinner who everyone despises. Jesus decides, I'm going to call that one to come and follow me. And it is most recently that we've seen Jesus saving the life of a Gentile slave on his deathbed, someone Jesus has never met and someone he owes nothing to, that Jesus actually breaks away from what it is he has been doing even after preaching all day without any rest. Jesus decides to make a dying slave his utmost priority. And so we have this Jesus who is high and mighty, and yet he stoops down to the lowest of people. This man of granite and yet with the heart of a child, full of power and authority, and yet that is coupled with mercy and grace to the most undeserving of people. This is Jesus who is unlike anyone we have ever seen. And while our last text gave to us this image of Jesus marveling at a centurion's faith, this man's strong belief, we find a person in our text this morning without any kind of faith or any kind of hope at all. And yet we still see the compassion and power of God even upon the one who does not ask for it. We find grace upon the one who has not yet any faith at all from a very small and insignificant town about 20 miles away by foot. Verse 11, we read, Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with them. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. We have in these verses the collision of two crowds, one with Jesus and then the other with the widow, one hyped and fresh off a miraculous healing and another hopeless and crushed at a recent passing. And they cross paths at the gate of a small town where we find Jesus coming face to face with death. And we are introduced here to one of the saddest people we find in the Bible. And in verse 12, it is as if each phrase of this verse serves to make us feel that weight all the more deeply. Behold... A man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. It's as if you just want that sentence to end, but it just keeps going. And the situation just keeps getting worse. And the scene is such that in these days, the bereaved would walk in front of the funeral procession, usually the family. But in this place, this woman walks alone because there is no family. 
And a crowd of mourning people would come from behind her with a handful of them carrying a wide plank of wood on which they laid the corpse, embalmed and prepared for the grave. And this funeral would usually occur on the same day as the death because dead bodies were ceremonially and religiously considered unclean, Numbers 12, which means you had to bury them quickly and you had to bury them outside the city gates to remove the dead ones away from the living. And so this is not a month afterward. This is not after some processing of the entire thing had already occurred. This death is fresh. And this is at the very height of pain and grief. These processions were miserable. But this is not this woman's first time making this walk. For she had taken the same march through these same city gates together with her son in front of her husband's dead body being carried and for him in front of his daddy's body being carried. But at least they had each other. At least they shared in the same sorrow so that they would not be alone in it. And you can imagine how this widow would see glints of her own husband in her son. They had the same smile. You look just like your daddy. I have a few of my own clones and my own sons in my house right now. And Laura's always looking at them and looking at me and telling them, you look just like him. And unfortunately for her, Piper looks just like me too. <laughs> but even in the midst of death, there, there's that hope that our family and even your father continues on and lives in and through you just by your striking resemblance to him and in your mannerisms. Maybe even the way that you laugh is just like the way he used to laugh. It's like he is still around. And it would be at this last funeral procession that the watching crowd would think, well, this widow still has her son. And look at how much they hold each other and lean upon each other. And look at how much he is like his father. There was a hope then, as sad as the last time had been. But here again we find these chilling words beating like a drum. Behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. This son who had been her hope, who would be her future in this very patriarchal society without life insurance or welfare or retirement accounts, this son would be her comfort and provision and financial support, the breadwinner and the solution to her loneliness and poverty. But this son is taken by the same destroyer of her husband, which is death. And it's almost as if she is dying herself. For her former life is going to be buried with her only child. This woman in our text is among the saddest we have seen in the scripture. And for those of you here who have lost a child, you know something of the pain that she is carrying, which is a pain unlike any other kind. This monster of death, this destroyer of life, is something we each and we all have an intimate awareness of in varying degrees. Every single one of us do. This has been called the tragedy of the human condition that every single one of us will or has come to this kind of experience. And many people throughout many cultures across the centuries and throughout the world, they can only do what they can do to deal with death. Because we can't stop death. We can only uh, take our dead out of the city, so to speak, beyond the gates of regular life to a place you only visit from time to time. 
Because of the destroyer that is death, it is a part of us all. This is how the world turns and has been turning for thousands upon thousands of years. But this is not how the world was originally supposed to be. There was no death in the original creation. And so why then is there death now? Romans chapter 5 verse 12 tells us this. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. The reason why there are funerals, the reason why there are tears like these in our text is because death is a necessary consequence of sin against God. Death reigns because sin has been committed. Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. If humanity had never turned against God, there would be no death experienced in humanity at all. For in the beginning, God created the world and it was good. It wasn't like the scene that we are seeing here. But the reason why the world is now so very broken and so full of misery is because of this contaminating force that is sin. And I'm sure that each of us have seen it in our own life as well, this ripple effect of sin that goes outward and messes everything up. Maybe you lose your temper. It ripples out. And this broken and contaminated and flawed world is the necessary rippling consequence of us turning our backs upon God himself. There would be no such thing as death or COVID or cancers of various kinds or any of these things if there had not been sin to contaminate God's good creation. That rather than having God's good reign in one sense, there is this reign instead of both sin and death, which explains the human condition and why the world is the way that it is, which is a very heavy yoke for any of us to carry. And so in one sense, this funeral procession is a visual sermon of its own about the authority that death preaches over human life. It is a proclamation of the sorrow of sin that it has brought into this world. It is the root and fountain for which all suffering finds its source. And sin and death preach their own power every time there is a funeral, that this is not the first time a group of people have walked out of these city gates, nor will it be the last. And so when a scene like this one, where a widow has successively lost everything, if a scene like this is so horrifying and so heartbreaking, then we must trace that kind of misery right back to its source, which is the rebellion which has ruined it all. And if this display is so miserable as a ripple effect and consequence, how much more miserable is iniquity against God at its very core? And so we have in these opening verses one of the saddest people in the Bible leading a procession of death by herself and feeling very heavily the consequences of a broken world which has been ravaged by sin amongst a crowd of people who have lost all hope and own no faith. And they are colliding with Jesus Christ who has just prevented death of a dying slave by the very words of his own mouth. We have Jesus here again coming face to face with death itself and look at how he responds in verse 13. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier and the bearer stood still 
And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Jesus' first response to the one feeling the misery of death is that of compassion. Now, the consequences of an action, the fallout, uh, these things are supposed to educate us a little bit. When my littler kids want to jump on the couch, and especially near the edge of it, and I tell them, you're going to fall and bonk your head, and they look at me and make sure to keep that eye contact while ignoring the very things that I say as they continue to jump and jump closer to that edge, and then they fall. Well, then I keep that eye contact as well and say, what did I tell you? And this is how you learn. But compassion is not always the first reaction when your commandments have been spurned again and again and again and again. And if these kids fell and bonked their heads and got up and jumped in the same spot and fell again and jumped in the same spot and fell again and jumped in the same spot yet again, well, at some point, the patience begins to wear very thin. And if they complain about sore noggins after the 15th time, well, what do you want me to tell you? You have to begin to connect the dots. But humanity always goes right back, jumping to that same spot. We live in a world that is filled with misery and death, and the evidence is all around us that things are not the way that they're supposed to be. We have people fighting each other about every little kind of thing, tribalism of the worst of sorts. We have diseases and, and, and birth defects and whatnot running rampant, earthquakes. We have volcanoes splitting islands into two. There's family division where we can't even get along with the people we supposedly love most to and say, I do with. And yet rarely do people ever look to their Father in heaven and begin to connect the dots that none of this is supposed to be like this and that our continuing departure from him ruins everything and harms us all. And one might suspect that if the Son of God were to come, his message would be a big fat, I told you so. Look at the worsening world around you. When will you all ever learn? And Jesus could come to these city gates with his entourage and see yet another funeral procession and shake his long finger and launch into a sermon. Do you see what the wages of sin are? When will you connect the dots? There was no death when I created you. There was no misery when we were walking hand in hand. But when the Son of God sees this poor widow in an avalanche of grief, when Jesus lays his eyes upon her, the text says he had compassion on her because this is Jesus' heart for those who are ravaged by the world, broken by sin, even when humanity is just reaping what we have sown. This is the Son of God's natural reaction to human suffering, even when that suffering is because of mankind's own fall. That Jesus' inclination towards us is one of great compassion and sympathy. And what we need to understand, each of us do, is that God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. That's John 3.17, which comes right after the famous John 3.16, for God so loved the world. This is not a love that we have earned or something that we deserve. God could have easily again sent his son into the world to condemn the world. You know why so many people are dying? Because you rejected me a long, long time ago from Adam and Eve, trusting a serpent more than me. 
to an entire planet of humanity whose thoughts were only on evil all the time prior to the flood, to the best of you, like Father Abraham, who was a lying coward frequently, to even the man after God's very own heart. King David, guess what? Found guilty of sexual assault, conspiracy, and murder. The very best of humanity. It's still broken humanity, and whenever I see a funeral, let this be a testament to just how short we each fall before the perfect holiness of God. This could have easily been Jesus' message, to which there would be no rebuttal from us at all, because it is entirely true. But look upon Jesus in our text, that the very first disposition he has towards a people feeling the natural consequence of human failure, the first response he has is that of great compassion and deep sympathy. Brothers and sisters, never ever forget that our God is a God of compassion. He is not some stern dad that always wants you to learn things the hard way. He is a God of great kindness. You need to come back to him even if you've wandered far away, even when you've already made your own bed and now you have to lie in it even though you're experiencing the consequences of your own bad decisions, that if you would just but look up, you would find the Son of God feeling the pain with you in your own situation and inviting you to come near to Him, and you will find that no matter how prodigal you have acted, there is always a Father scanning that horizon waiting for you to come home. And so Jesus here stops the whole funeral procession tells this weeping widow who has yet no faith at all, he tells her not to weep, which would be utterly cruel words if he weren't going to do anything about it. But here Jesus is, that when coming face to face with death itself and toe to toe with the wages and the power of sin, Jesus does want to do something about it because he is impelled by his own compassionate heart. And Jesus touches that Beer, the platform of the dead, that open caskets of sorts which would normally contaminate the one who touches the dead. And every religious, spiritual Jewish person in both of those crowds would be cringing. You're not supposed to touch the dead like that. You're not supposed to get near death like that. But death has no power to contaminate the Holy Son of God because a power flows from Jesus in the authority of his word that he can tell a dead man to arise and the dead man with dead ears can hear that command. And the dead man obeys it, no longer dead anymore because now it is that he is speaking. This is Jesus' authority over even death. And that last phrase shows our God's compassionate heart that Jesus gave him to his mother. He didn't say, son, come on tour with me now and tell your testimony to thousands about how powerful I am. No, he does this purely to demonstrate his own heart for the most miserable in a small town that no one would ever really go to. Jesus knows this woman's story, every single detail. He understands her misery. He feels it himself intensely. He does. And he willingly throws himself into it. And what is true in our text is still true today, that you will find no matter what tragedy you have endured or are enduring or what kind of funerals you've had wept at, you are not alone in the front of this procession, even if your only son has been taken from you. This text shows to us that Jesus is right there with you, 
being your support. You can lean on him as the one you need to cling to. Isaiah 53, 4 says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He knows everything about your pain. He wants to carry it with you. His compassions fail not. And so it is that Jesus comes face to face with death, toe-to-toe with the wages of sin and the power of it, and with just a mere sentence, has the authority to command death away and make the dying alive again to give the man back to his mother. Verse 16, we continue. Fear sees them all, and they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has risen, arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. The people respond to Jesus with this awe and reverence and worship of Yahweh because they believe that God has been present with them in sending to them a prophet. And there were two prophets in Old Testament history who raised the dead. Elijah, at the end of 1 Kings 17, where he prays and pleads to God to raise the dead son of a widow. Does that sound familiar? And Elisha, which actually happened on the other side of this same hill that Jesus is on. Elisha, in 2 Kings 4, prays and pleads to God, and he lays himself on the body of the dead son of a widow. And the son wakes up and sneezes seven times, and then he opens his eyes. And so there is this recognition by this pattern that this is a power that only God can demonstrate. And therefore, there's an appropriate fear and awe and reverence at what is occurring at the city gates of Nain, that this Jesus is a great prophet, which is true, but that which is a confession that is also not enough. For this Jesus has no prayer, there is no pleading, the son had no sneezing or process by which he came to. Jesus simply commanded the dead to rise and the dead arose because there is this authority which is present only within the Son of God and God himself, which is coupled at the same time with this heart of utter compassion. This Jesus is more powerful than death the destroyer, and he is the one who can undo its effects. Now why... Didn't Jesus raise more of the dead during his time on earth? I think we only have only three instances where he does this in the Gospels. Here, Jairus' daughter and Lazarus in the book of John. Why not more, Jesus, if you're so compassionate? And why not continue to raise the dead through his church on earth and prevent death from even occurring? This act that Jesus accomplishes for this widow in our text isn't a solution that is lasting at all. This son, he lived again, but this son would also die again. And Lazarus, after he came forth from the grave, in the years to come, he would go back to the grave again, as did Jairus' daughter. So she got to die twice rather than just the once. Because this kind of miracle doesn't ultimately solve the problem of death for death would still be coming upon these three who Jesus has raised in the Gospels. Jesus does not defeat the destroyer that is death ultimately in our passage. And Jesus does not eliminate completely the wages and power of sin right here in the text. He's only addressing the ripple effect. He has to address the very core. 
And Jesus would come face to face with death again and toe to toe with the wages and the power of sin because the Son of God, out of his great compassion on us, the dying and the spiritually dead, he chooses to come face to face with his very own death and bear our sin upon himself, the sinless one. That he wants to die in our place, the death that we each deserve. He wants to die as sin itself upon the cross. The way that Jesus ultimately destroys the power of sin is by dying as sin. The way that Jesus destroys death is by dying and rising again. And this is the ultimate display of both power and compassion that the highest and mightiest would die like the worst criminal upon a cross that the Son of God would absorb the wrath of God and the curse of God, put it on my body in their place, the righteous in the place of the unrighteous, which is amazing grace and the purest love to the undeserving. This is how Jesus decides to die. But this power is such that Jesus defeats death by rising from the grave and bursting forth from his tomb, proving that his offering had been accepted, that the wages of sin have been paid, and the power of death is broken once and for all, and the power of sin is broken once and for all, that whoever would put their trust into Jesus Christ and turn away from the life that they were living without him, that this one would have life and life eternal. For Jesus' power is not just in sympathy, but in actually giving spiritual life to the dead ones with his own resurrection, the proof and the promise of ours. And the body that Jesus now has after his own resurrection is full of glory and immortality, which is a body that we will each receive when we are raised anew, sinless, and perfect. What this passage is showing to us is a parable of what is to come. It is what Charles Spurgeon calls a rehearsal upon a small scale. This is just a pointer to the main event, which is coming later, because a day is coming, brothers and sisters. And Jesus proclaims this himself in John 5, 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. There will be an ultimate resurrection that every believer will experience when we are raised to eternal glory. Uh, some of our church family has passed away in these last couple of years. And brothers and sisters, Jesus will, by his own voice, raise them up. And those who have died will rise again to never die again. And he will give them back to us. And he will give us back to them those who are found in him. Some of us are sick and crippled and our bodies are failing us. This is the hope we look for, not for some resuscitation to buy us 10 more years, but the ultimate resurrection so that we can experience everything that God is for us in Jesus Christ in a sinless and perfect body we never had in this place. As we come to the Lord's table, we hold the elements in our hands and we proclaim together as a church, this blood is the only thing that can wash away my sin. This blood is the only thing that can defeat the power of sin. We proclaim his body given for us. 
He's given us his everything. He's given us his all, and it is his body which makes us one with each other, for we are called his body, the church. But it is also a proclamation as we're remembering the cross and the resurrection. It is also a forward-looking proclamation that we are his church and his bride, and we look forward to a day when we will eat this table anew in his coming kingdom. For he said himself on his last night on earth that I will not drink this again until I drink it anew with you. We are to look with great anticipation towards this coming kingdom and teach us to number our days so that we might live our lives accordingly. We have a God of great compassion who has not withheld anything from us. And brothers and sisters, may we be a faithful church who withholds nothing from him as well. Would you please join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for your great compassion. We thank you for your love and your amazing grace and your sympathy that humanity is broken as we are. You look upon us with love, even though we do not deserve it. We've turned our backs on you, and yet you grab us by the shoulder and turn us around back to you. We've made a mess of so many things, and yet you're the one who cleans that mess up. And you have to clean it with the very blood of your beloved son. Father, we thank you so much for your great love. Would you please, by your Holy Spirit, open our eyes to seeing that love more and more, especially in all the things that we have to go through in this broken world. Father, please lift our chins to see you and to trust in you and to give ourselves to you. Teach us, God, to number our days that what is just immediately in front of us may not be ultimate. Lord, be everything that is ultimate to us. Father, we, I, I pray for mercy and grace upon those here who are hurting, that you would come alongside of them, that you would have us lean on you, and that you would walk with us and help us to trust in you with all our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.